Welcome to the Mokria Podcast. I'm Adam Chavez, and I'm here with Mills Baker. Hello. We're going to be chatting a little bit about Google I.O., WWDC, and, uh, and whatever else we feel like talking about. Uh, Mills, welcome. Thanks, Adam. How you doing? A lot of people are thinking a lot about Google I.O., obviously, and kind of in the wake of that conference and also WWDC. Um, and I just, you know, I wanted to get your, your thoughts on, on where, uh, where Google's heading and where Apple is heading and, and kind of just overall, I want to get your sort of brief, uh, brief overview on that. Well, I don't do brief, but um, I guess what I'll, I'll say is this. Uh, I have not really looked closely at what's come out of Google I.O. Uh, I'm a little bit more familiar with WWDC, although I didn't attend either. Um, I mainly, uh, in my, my familiarity with Google I.O. is more or less confined to making fun of the prose and verbiage in the uh, design materials that they've shared for their new material design paradigm, which I thought were... Um, I thought uh, a designer who I uh, follow on Twitter named Christy Tillman, I think, put it very well when she said that it seemed evident that it was all rationalizations of, uh, of decisions that essentially can be described as trend following. So if you look at the material design paradigm, it looks, in my opinion, um, and, uh, you know, there are some variances, but it looks a lot like iOS 7, bright colors that Apple was sort of made fun of by the serious nerd set for last year, um, a big emphasis on uh, layers, on uh, colors, of course, um, things like that, and uh, also in, 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 I think, a general kind of uh, a flatness. So um, I thought that was all pretty evidently imitative, I suppose, and uh, I, I opened up the PDF that they had and really lulled at some of the ways that they described stuff. It seemed a little bit pretentious, which also seemed imitative of Apple, um, which uh, does have a tendency to, uh, you know, get fairly heavy with their descriptions of what they're trying to achieve. But, you know, um, Christie's point, I think, was a little bit uh, more astute than mine, which was, and, and what she said was, these are trends that are kind of suggested by the technologies and um, being content forward, being cross-platform, that's really just kind of the nature of design right now. And flatness follows from that somewhat naturally. I think bright colors signaling uh, actionability and interactivity follow fairly naturally from that too um, because uh, that's just uh, kind of a sensible way to go with it. Um, so, I, you know, I, I like to make fun of uh, Google a bit, but um, uh, I think that um, they're just kind of converging, uh, along with Microsoft even, on a kind of a design language that you see shared by all three of the big platform makers. Can you talk a little bit more about what you mean by, by flat design? Well, yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I think um, last year it was everybody's favorite thing to opine about uh, that, I guess maybe this was even the year before that, that iOS had gotten too skeuomorphic, um, had too much... Um, a, it was too kind of um, maybe in a, in a sort of a facile way, uh, too derivative of just real world um, objects and textures, structures, so that your calendar app looked like a desk calendar, which I always thought was especially amusing because I think a very low percentage of the, the public actually has desk calendars. Um, I'm not like there were a lot of design cues in there that didn't really seem to come from everyday experience to me. But anyway, that, that did anchor the functionality of different apps and different um, features of the operating system in real world things that people could analogize them to. And um, I think a lot of people, to be to be blunt, I think a lot of people in our scene just didn't like that. Uh, a lot of people in the design and, and tech world just didn't like it anymore. You know, um, there's a kind of a mysterious property of the aesthetic, which is that 
it does age and you begin to react against it. And then afterward, again, you rationalize why you're reacting against it. So you heard a lot of people talking about everything being um, unnatural, being like, you know, like kind of, um, you know, ugly, uh, just a bit heavy. Um, but I think the real developmental issue is that stuff like that takes a long time to, to make. Um, so for example, when iOS 7 was coming out, uh, it seemed to me that the big advantage there was that it was a design language that was much more portable. Um, at the time, I even incorrectly predicted that it indicated that Apple was really going to be uh, focusing a, a, a lot on devices of different kinds. So maybe a watch, maybe a television product that was a little bit different than Apple TV. But, but basically that all of those buttons and all of those textures and all of the things that, you know, that were lickable in the old Steve Jobs remark about Aqua were going to be deprecated in iOS because you wanted speed of design iteration. You wanted to be able as a developer and a designer just to say, hey, the back button is just, it's just the word back and it's going to be in blue sort of like a hyperlink uh, on the web, and that's it. We don't have to design a button for that. We don't have to design an image asset. We don't have to make sure that we have image assets in the right sizes for the iPhone, the iPad, the Apple TV, the iWatch, so on and so forth. In other words, it was just truly kind of cross-platform design, a little bit like you see in apps like RDO, which have to exist everywhere. The reaction to all of that was what they call flat design, which is just they call it flat because it does look a lot flat. It, it has fewer depth implying gradients, depth implying shadows. Although, uh, amusingly, I've and all the other guys in the Apple uh, uh, world talked a lot about depth in terms of things like that parallax effect and layering of effects. And there's even a little nod to the famous uh, Zoom UI, the, the Zooey, um, in the sense that when you use iOS 7 and go into folders, it sort of zooms in and out. So there's actually some, some perspectival depth there. Um, it's just not being implied by kind of, well, what now look like cheesy image assets. Instead, it's actually uh, almost physical. Um, and so I think you see some of that uh, in, uh, in, in Google's material as well. It's a very bright, very flat set of looks. Um, and I think it looks really good. I happen, you know, so, so because I made fun of them a little bit, I should backtrack and just note that I happen to think it looks really good. There are some things about it that are discouraging. I actually do dislike the hamburger menu. I saw a couple of jokes going around about that on Twitter, but I, I do think hamburger menus are difficult for people. Um, and so I, I'm not thrilled to see that remain. But uh, by and large, I think it's a great update, and it'll be good to see that go across Android. Uh, do you think that designers still need to be able to create those skeuomorphic designs, or do you think the designers of the future will be able to just sort of take take those images or take take these sort of patterns that are that Apple lays down and then design with them without having to do as much of the visual design? You know, that's a really good question. Um, I think it's going to depend a lot on what kind of designer you want to be and on what the application is. I think that, you know, I, I don't want to, you know, give potentially disastrous career advice to anybody and, and say, hey, you know, visual design's over because it's certainly not. There's like a wide range of, of, of um, product development and software development um, uses for, for high quality image assets for, for all that type of stuff. Um, that said, I think the, the dream for a lot of people in sort of the, the agile and post-agile world is to get as close to using modular, um, you know, sort of uh, um, SDK-suggested design elements as they can. Um, it's easier to maintain. It's faster to develop. It allows you to experiment with more looks. It allows you to be a little bit more um, iterative, excuse me, iterative as a result of that improved speed. Um, you know, for example, if, if you're building a lot of really great looking, super, super polished stuff, 
it's going to be a real pain in the ass to come up with an A, a B, a C, and a D to test. But if, if you're really working at the stage of wireframes, and this is, I think, fairly 101 stuff, um, obviously, it's cheaper to experiment. And to the extent that um, a given design language from a platform developer uh, allows you to just kind of take user flows and take wireframes and then instantiate them in the software without doing a lot of asset development, without spending a lot of time in Photoshop or some crummy program like that, um, uh, it's beneficial to you. Uh, you can learn more, you can do more, you can test more. So um, that said, you, you know, we tend to see this pattern where, especially with new and innovative platforms, people need metaphorical and analogical grounding. So, you know, right now, people are accustomed to smartphones, or at least that seems to be the thesis, I think, of iOS 7's design language and, and, and Google's design language, um, the material design language, because um, we're dropping all of these metaphorical anchors, right? Now, when my grandmother launches Calendar, it, she doesn't have a lot of reassuring cues that, hey, this is a calendar, like your desk calendar. Instead, she's got a, a, a frankly, very abstract, grid-like presentation of lines and colors to signify what's actionable. And the assumption there, I think, is that she's used the smartphone enough now that those patterns actually are pretty intelligible. Um, I hope that that's true. I, 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 you know, I would assume that if it weren't true, if, if iOS 7 had been a disaster, you would see some rollback in iOS 8, and you certainly don't. Um, on the other hand, there were some over-aggressive elements of iOS 7. You know, we saw some really sort of, um, I think, kind of daring uh, initial design ideas that were dialed back. Even in the beta phase of iOS 7, we originally had, like, you know, to pick up the, uh, an incoming call, there was just this big green bar at the bottom. And I think the assumption there was people know you slide to pick up the phone, so you don't have to give them a button-like shape or cue. Well, that didn't actually work. I think people found that a little bit maybe... Um, hard to understand. So you do actually see uh, some degree of dial back there. So anyway, th to answer your question, um, I think designers are always going to be well served with the ability to illustrate, with the ability to create any kind of look that they want. But as design kind of shifts, as it does from being more about visual and graphic design to being more about interactive design, prototyping, UX design, and even design in code, design in the software, um, I think uh, it's maybe less important, but who knows where the future will lead. Do you think it's commonly understood among designers, this idea that the design is not how, you know, how it looks, it, it's how it functions and, and, and sort of the, the visual parts of it sort of uh, help to, to um, support that, the, the decisions that were made, but they're not, the, the, the visual part is not the design itself. Do you think that that's well understood among the design community or do you think that's like still sort of, even though it's been said for so long, sort of um, some designers still think, oh, design is going into Photoshop and making things look pretty. You know, it's super hard to say. I, I can't presume to speak for the design community. I, I actually have almost no sense myself of where the global you know, a community of designers, if you can even speak of such a thing, um, uh, falls on that question. You know, on the one hand, I feel like design is how it works, not how it looks, is really at this point, you know, it's hoary, it's well known, it's, 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 it's common knowledge. On the other hand, I regularly see design that suggests it's not common knowledge, and even more so, I regularly see designers who clearly don't think that way and, and don't operate that way. But I think that's, that's pretty straightforward. I think a bigger question here, or, or a more uh, sort of um, something that's a little bit maybe, um, uh, you know, less kind of like some people get it, some people don't, 
is that uh, polish still does matter. It matters a great deal. You know, we talk a lot about how iOS has flat design. There are so many unusual and subtle elements of polish in the way that iOS looks. They've gone from being, you know, uh, hey, this is a, you know, again, to refer back to the famous remark about Aqua, hey, this is a lickable button. And now it's more about, you know, almost lickable translucencies, right? And that translucency is achieved in code, of course, but it's still a function of design. It's still been designed. And designers may not be saying, hey, here's, I want the edit button or I want the, uh, the OK button to be green and then on this side red, but they're saying, I want it to be translucent. I want it to reflect whatever the user's desktop is. And if the desktop's dark, I want it to do this. And if it's light, I want it to do this for these reasons of legibility, but also for these aesthetic reasons. So, you know, I think there's almost sometimes a, an excessive sense that polish is no longer important. But in both hardware and software, polish is extremely important. It's just important in uh, only specific applications and only in specific places. And I think one of the big things that designers should always be mindful of is that polish represents you know, the honing of a committed idea to some level of perfection. And that's great once you're really committed to the idea. You know, Apple makes a platform and platforms don't really evolve all that quickly in most cases. I mean, historically speaking, iOS moves at breakneck speed. You know, it's only been a few years and we've already got an entirely new design language. Whereas if you were a Mac user back in the 90s, you went a hell of a long time without seeing, you know, folders change, without seeing menu bars change, uh, unless you were installing, you know, Aaron or whatever, uh, or Kaleidoscope. But uh, I think that, you know, when you make a platform, you can make longer bets, and, and therefore you can polish more. And I think when you look at apps still to this day, uh, you know, a lot of my favorite apps have a huge amount of polish. Um, the problem with polish, like I said, is that you're honing an idea to which you're sort of committed. You know, it's just like anything. If if somebody were to paint a really, really beautiful mural on my wall, I'd better be damn sure about the wall. You know, I'd better be sure that I'm going to, and I'm better be sure that I'm going to be staying in this apartment and not giving it to some other uh, resident who won't like the mural. And in the same way, for Apple to spend a lot of time thinking about how they want given translucencies or icons to look makes more sense than it does maybe for an app maker who hasn't validated the core structural premises or metaphors of their app. Um, and so, I think that's just kind of one of those trade-offs you have to be mindful of. It's great to put polish into an app. You know, I think probably the, the you know, a relevant example that everybody thinks of is Path. Path was one of those apps, especially when it launched, that was really broadly faded for how great its polish was. It had a lot of nice touches. It had, I think, a cool, uh, it, had, it had cool visual design, but it also had cool interactive design. You know, when you would, you know, add something to your timeline that, that the UI for that had good kinetic weight, like everything just kind of felt good. I remember being deeply impressed with their integration with um, some kind of backend provider of what you were listening to so that I could say, as like a status update, I could say, hey, I'm listening to this album right now or this song right now. And people in my network could actually listen to a clip of that song, which I thought was, that's a great example of really going deep on a feature. They polished it, it looked beautiful, they processed your photos beautifully. So, but it turns out that the product assumptions underneath all of that uh, seem to have been mistaken. The idea that people just wanted a more attractive and, and more exclusive Facebook, that's not true. Nobody really wants that. Um, and so nobody uses it. And they had committed a lot of polish and development time and design time to things that now don't get them anything, or, and more importantly, don't get users anything, don't provide any value to users. I think that's a kind of an illustration of what I mean. It's not that the polish was a mistake. It's that 
you only want to polish things that you've really validated. And in the validating phase, it's better not to have polish because you can move more quickly. Do you, do you think that played into Apple's reasons for creating this new paradigm and, and going going with with a more flat approach to the way that design works so that developers can go through that process more quickly? Or do you think, you think it's other trends that are converging? That's a really good question. I wish I knew... I wish I could ask somebody in Apple that question and get an answer to that because I always wonder how much they're thinking about that. I mean, that is Apple's job with the platform, you know, or one of their many jobs is to enable developers to create great value for consumers. And part of how you do that with everything from APIs to the design language that you mandate is making it so that developers can 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 solve problems, right? Can 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 make great software for people. And to the extent that you can allow developers to learn faster and build faster, you've done that. I think, you know, one thing with the, with the new design, I, I, and this is, again, this would be speculative, but I, I think that Apple was probably hopeful that they would see fewer horrible UIs. You know, because if you look back, especially to the early days of the App Store, you saw a lot of UIs that were super skeuomorphic. You even saw, I think uh, John Gruber used to post, I think he had some kind of gallery of historically bad UIs and sometimes they would have knobs, you know, little knobs in them. That is, somebody would go so skeuomorphic that the way you would control something in their app would be by turning a, a knob, like a, you know, a bitmap knob or Maybe so. the door or something. Right. And, and, you know, stuff like that's not good. And, and so if you can say, hey, here's a comprehensive design guideline set that doesn't really allow you to screw up too badly, um, you've actually probably done some good there. Now, I think if you look at the App Store, you still see a lot of really bad custom UIs. And you see some really bad misapplications of flat design, too. I mean, anything can be, can be used incorrectly. But I would imagine that there was some thinking about, about that on, you know, in, in app, for, on Apple's part. During Google I.O., uh, Google Plus was mentioned once. And it was, it was kind of, remember, it was memorably the only, one of the only times where there was no applause. It was like, you know, it was supposed to be this big punchline and then silence. Um, Google Glass wasn't even mentioned. Uh, I'm just curious, what you know? What do you make of of the absences? Um, what do you think about these bets that Google is taking? Are they are they starting to are, are they the next Microsoft? Are they starting to get into that to that point where they just can't um, they can't innovate and they don't understand what users want? I'm just curious to hear your thoughts on that. No, I I don't think so at all. I think. I think one of the unfortunate things about market capitalism, and I and I'm you know I don't mean this as a general critique, but that it does often bring companies into conflict with one another along axes that actually take them away from their their core competencies and and away from their their real focus, the focus that even they would prefer to have. I think you know the the, the canonical example of this for me is Apple Maps. I happen to use Apple Maps, so I should say that to begin with. Um, I don't, I don't find Apple Maps to be unus, unusably bad like a lot of people do. Um, You're the one guy in San Francisco still using Apple Maps? Yeah, well, not only that, every now and then I say, well, I got to really get with it. I'm going to use Google Maps. And I try to use Google Maps. And uh, Google Maps is as error prone as Apple Maps, makes as many mistakes. And in fact, I find recently has brought me much closer to high speed death uh, a few times by not, not correctly orienting itself when it suddenly tells me to turn. 
Um, but when Google Maps makes a mistake, you just kind of say, that's computer maps for you. And when Apple Maps makes a mistake, you say, God damn it, Siri. And, or, you know, you, you really blame Apple, which is, I think, an interesting example of how that works. Different brands have a different kind of ownership or responsibility of the experience that you have, but that's tangential. Um, what I mean, though, specifically about Apple Maps and Google Maps is that Apple probably did not ever really want to get into the mapping business. And it's not just because it's a pain, it's that it's not really what Apple's great at. Um, it's not, you know, they, I'm sure at the time, they, you know, certainly in, when they launched the iPhone, they didn't want to get into it. They wanted to work with Google. But ultimately, Google's business model and Apple's way of developing a platform come into conflict both naturally and because of some management issues. And you wind up with a situation where the companies cannot, in good conscience, just rely on one another to be, to be you know, um, safe partners. And so, Ultimately, Apple feels like they've got to develop maps, and Google, of course, feels like they have to develop a smartphone platform, and they both do so, and you kind of wind up with, I'm sure, some, you know, some, some kind of squandered creative energy, some squandered organizational energy, people working on things that they normally would not, even though there's a better solution out there, even though there's a better option out there, because they have to for competitive reasons, for, for market reasons. Um, that's what I think of Google+. Google+, was not created by Google because anybody anywhere in the world needed it or wanted it. It was not created by Google because there was any problem that they were attempting to solve other than a market problem that they have with Facebook. That is, they're in conflict with Facebook for you know, a slew of reasons. Again, some of them related to technology, some of them related to their incompatible business models and the way that they the way that they operate and some of them related to, to management so um if suddenly google says my god we've got to get social we need to you know be connecting the you know the the a, a given user's behavior across these different services our advertisers need it we need it we need to understand stuff better and you can rationalize backwards from that need quite easily right google can say well we're going to make social better we're not going to be like Facebook. We're going to do things differently than Facebook, and we can use our advantage with machine learning and with scale and all these other things. And boy, we're going to be right there in Gmail. And I remember getting into an argument with somebody who told me that basically Facebook was finished. Um, Facebook was finished because uh, Google was so deeply integrated into everybody's lives, into everybody's social lives because of Gmail that Facebook would never be able to compete with that. And you know, you think about how deeply integrated Gmail is with, with your social world and, and, your, and your life. It does almost make sense. And yet, if you know, at the time, the reason we had the argument is because I said, no, this is not an organic product development process. This is Google rationalizing backwards from an organizational or business need, and they will not be able to holistically solve user problems because they're not really thinking about their users. They're thinking about their own ends. And you can't, it just, it, it just tends to not work when you do that. And in fact, it hasn't. Google Plus really could never answer the question of why should I be on Google Plus? You know, the best answer that you could give is I'm angry at Facebook. I'm angry at Facebook's privacy policy. And I know that people out here think that that's a big issue, but the reality is most Americans do not know and have not heard of and do not care about Facebook's privacy policy beyond some brief talking point they might make a post about every, you know, five or six months. I mean, this is the country that supports, you know, the NSA. So this is not, these are not people who are, are up in arms about it. So basically, um, I think that Google Plus kind of, you know, being less discussed was inevitable. I just don't think it was ever really a very sensible product strategy for them, and I don't think it was going to work. I don't actually have anything, I can't even speculate about what's going on with Glass, because 
I know everybody in the Apple world, and I guess I'm, you know, I'm guilty of being a, a mild Apple fanboy. Everybody in the Apple world loves to knock glass and say that it's so stupid. And God, you'd, you know, how could Google design this product that you'd never wear if you wanted to get laid? Um, you know, and gee, you'd, you'd never wear this thing on your face if you wanted to look like a regular person. I actually, I think all of that's garbage. If glass provides great utility, people will adopt it or they will wait until it looks good. And it's just an, it's an inevitable process, right? It'll get more and more miniature, and eventually it'll provide really useful uh, augmented reality functions. I, I mean, eventually it may provide those functions, and people would adopt it. In fact, I've, I've said to a lot of people, I, I doubt very seriously that Apple is completely ignoring the idea of, uh, you know, I guess what you'd call um, a heads-up display type of uh, computer interaction. It's just not ready for, for, for the mass market right now. But I actually don't think that the social issues are um, uh, intractable. I think that it's really more that right now Google Plus doesn't really do anything. Uh, excuse me, Google, uh, Google Glass doesn't really do anything all that useful, um, except for nerds. And uh, so it's not going anywhere. And, I, and, and as to why they didn't mention it in the keynote, um, they might just not have any news about it. Uh, there might not be any updates on it. I don't know if that means that it's being sunset or that it was a you know, humiliating debacle. I really have no idea. Cool. I think that's our time. Thanks, everybody. We'll be back next week. Thank you.